his robes for mine. Oh, wonderful exchange. Clothed in my sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage. Draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my place he died. I cling to Christ and marvel at the cost. Jesus forsaken, God estranged from God. But by such love, my life is not my own. My praise, my all shall be for Christ alone. His robes for mine, such anguish none can know. Christ God's beloved, condemned as though his foe. He as though I, a curse, and left alone I as though he embraced and welcomed home I cling to Christ and marvel at the cost Jesus forsaken God estranged from God but by such love, my life is not my own. My praise, my all, shall be for Christ alone. My praise, my all, my praise, my all. truth that is packed into those words. Um, just It talks about an exchange, right? And a lot of times we focus on what Jesus did for us, which is, which is true. We need that. Jesus came and he exchanged. He took on my robes, right? But the other part to that song was, I took on his. The inheritance that he had, the blessings that he deserved, those became mine because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for my sins. And so that's why I praise him. That's why I glorify him because the life I'm living, it's not the one I deserve. It's the one he deserved. And so it isn't my life anymore. It is his life. And so we ought to keep that in mind. And thank you for that song today. Children ages four years old to fourth grade, you guys are going to be dismissed. Brother Schrader is taking over Children's Church. Um, and so the kids will enjoy their time over there. He brings in all these neat little science experiments half the time. I think he had one of those things where it makes your hair stand up on edge you when you touch it. He had a big, huge one, and they all came up there and touched it. So, <laughs> But they all enjoy those. So. Go and open your Bibles to Acts chapter number 8. Acts chapter number 8. <clears throat> 
Now that we are back in chronological order in, in the book of Acts, we are going to continue on with the next story in the, in the book of Acts. But uh, when I think of the book of Acts and this passage, my mind goes to the Great Awakening. I don't know if you know anything about the Great Awakening, one of the great revivals in American history. Um, it spread from England and then into America. It was influenced by men like George Whitfield, John and Charles Wesley. And uh, revival spread throughout America. And people, it was really a revival of evangelicalism. Because most of the churches back then were becoming Catholic, basically. They were becoming more Catholic. And they had lost the, the, any knowledge of the gospel. And so this was a revival of preaching the gospel, seeing people saved who had just lived in religions that taught a formalistic uh, religious experience, but not the true gospel of Christ. But one of my favorite preachers during the Great Awakening was Jonathan Edwards. Okay, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon in his church in Connecticut called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. His text was found in De Deuteronomy 32, verse 20, 35, which says, To me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. From this he drew the conclusion that the lost are in danger of going to hell at any moment. He likened them to being men who are on a narrow cliff that is slippery, and they could fall into the abyss at any moment. And the only reason that they stay up on that cliff is not their own strength, but it is God's mercy, that they are not at this very instant in hell. God, God could send any of us to hell at any moment, uh, uh, the lost, and there is no guarantee of tomorrow. And it is only God's mercy that keeps them out of hell. And he likens them to a spider web. And if you were to take a stone and throw it at that spider web, what would happen to the web? It would break as easily as anything, right? So it's extremely easy. And that's, that's how fragile their state is before God And so overall, his me the message of Jonathan Edwards was that God, that the lost are in deserving of hell and they are in danger of hell at any moment. And he preached this message. He preached it without passion, uh, unlike me, okay? So he preached it just reading his manuscript, which I have a manuscript, but I don't read the whole thing, okay? So he, pre he read his manuscript. And when the people got worked up too much, they started hooting and hollering and crying and weeping too much, he would stop and wait until they stopped. Because he didn't want it to be merely an emotional response, which was very common in, in those days. And so he wanted them to have a true God-spirit-moved response to the message that he was preaching. But from that message, sinners in the hands of an angry God, people got saved. It's estimated that about 10% of New England got saved for directly out of the, that message being preached. Could you imagine 10% of Oklahoma getting preached from one message that you, or getting saved from one message that you preached? Uh, Edwards himself describes weekly the results after this. What was happening during the Great Awakening? He writes to his sister Mary and he says, Dear Mary, through the wonderful mercy and goodness of God, there hath in this place been a very remarkable stirring and outpouring of the Spirit of God, and likewise now is, but I think, I have reason to think it is somewhat diminished. But I hope not much. About 13 have joined the church in an estate of full communion. I think there comes commonly a Monday about 30 persons to speak with Father about the condition of their souls. So what is he saying? 13 people joined the church every Sunday? 30 people got saved every 
Monday. You know, that, that's what he's reporting. He was seeing astronomical numbers of people who were getting saved, and the church was growing. This was the second largest church in, in New England at the time. And honestly, when I look at things like that, when I read accounts like that, I have a yearning and a desire to see God do a work like that, a mighty work of the Spirit. That's why we sang the songs that we sang this morning. We want to see God do a mighty work. But here's the question I have to ask myself. Why do I want to see such a work? What are my motivations for desiring a work of God like that? Our text is going to deal with a man who saw the outpouring of the Spirit. He saw the, these miracles and these things that Philip and the apostles were doing, and he wanted that. But there was something wrong with his heart. His why was wrong. His motivation was wrong. Was it wrong to desire these things? Not really. But it was his heart. That's, that's ultimately what, what this text is going to be dealing with. So as we look at Simon in this passage, our question that we need to ask ourselves today is why do we want to see God do a mighty outpouring of his spirit. Let's open up in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to preach your word, and I pray that you will open our eyes to the real condition of our hearts. Lord, this is, this is not an intellectual text. This is not a, a deep theological lesson today. But Father, this is a challenge to our motivations. And Lord, uh, just examining my own life so often I struggle with with pride and with uh, wrong motives. And I just pray that you, Lord, would be glorified through everything that's done in this church today. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So in our Bible reading, we started in verse number four. So our first point here that we're going to look at is the spread of the gospel because we have to set the context, what is going on in this text. In verse number four, after the death of Stephen, Stephen's been stoned and the church is being persecuted. Verse number four says, therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the gospel. They went everywhere preaching the word, okay? And so that, so what you have is the church is now being persecuted. And from what we read earlier in the text, the apostles, they remained there. But most of the rest of the church got spread out. They got scattered abroad because of that persecution, and so in verse number four, it says that they, as they were scattered abroad, they went everywhere preaching the word, okay? Um, and, and the idea, this word scattered, when we think about it, I think a lot of times we put a negative spin on it, like scattered is a bad thing. They got, they got persecuted and they had to flee, right? But it's really the idea of casting seed. If you want, if you want seed to grow, you've got to spread it out, right? Um, the other day when I was writing this message, there was ice in the parking lot, Okay? And so I, ha I needed to get some ice salt and put it down so that it would melt, so that the ice would melt. Now, if I took that bag of salt and poured the whole thing in the middle of the parking lot, would it have been very effective at getting the ice melted across the rest of the parking lot? No, it would not, okay? You know what I did? I took a seed spreader, and I poured the ice, uh, the ice salt into that seed spreader and walked back and forth across the parking lot multiple times. So it would spread it evenly, and the ice could get melted. So really, we have a positive thing here. God brings persecution against the church. God allows this persecution against the church because it allows them to spread out with the gospel. If you remember our very first message from the book of Acts, we talked about the outline coming from Acts 1, verse 8. It says, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. 
That is our outline for the book because the gospel is breaking out now of Jerusalem and it is going to other parts of the world. And that's, that's an important thing to understand as we look at this text right here. The gospel is being seeded across the world. It is getting out of the confines of the city of Jerusalem. And here in the text in verse number four, in verse number five, it says, then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached unto them. So in Acts 1.8, Jerusalem, we have Judea. Now we are seeing the gospel go out to Samaria. It is, is going further and further away from its focal point there in the city of Jerusalem. And so, and so we have here Philip, along with other believers, they are, as they are scattered, they are going about preaching the gospel. Now, I've talked about this before. A lot of people get it in their heads that preachers and deacons and staff members at church are the ones who are supposed to be preaching and witnessing. Verses like this are my reason for believing that the gospel, the responsibility to preach the gospel, is everyone's responsibility. Because the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. So who is this? This is everybody else. It includes Philip, who is a deacon, but it's everybody else. And what did they do? They went about preaching. Now we have different words for preaching in, in the book of Acts and in the New Testament. This one right here is literally the word gospel, gospelizing, okay? So it's the idea of giving out the gospel. And I mentioned this in Sunday school. A lot of people struggle with being courageous enough to give out the gospel because they're afraid of what the other person's going to say. Like they're going to ask a question that I have no clue how to answer. Or it's going to be an atheist and he's going to say, but this scientific law debates this thing about God and so it can't be true. You know what? That's not what you need to do. You don't need to have the answers to all those questions. It would help, but you don't have to have them, right? You know the gospel. If you are saved, you have the knowledge of the gospel. If you don't, I question it, okay? You have the knowledge because you know how you got saved. You know what you believed when you got saved. That's enough right there. Honestly, it's probably enough just to tell your testimony and intersperse what God taught you while you were getting saved, you know? Basic, right? Easy. The, and, and so we, we all have the ability to give the gospel out to other people. And so here we see not just the preachers, not just the apostles, but everybody, as they were scattered abroad, went about giving out the gospel everywhere that they went. And Philip, Philip, one of the deacons, he's one of those who is, who is scattered abroad. He is one of those who flees Jerusalem. And he goes down to a city of Samaria. Okay, now we don't know exactly what city this is. There's some debate about that. Um, but Philip is going outside his comfort zone right here. Because the Jews had nothing to do with the Samaritans. If you know anything about the Samaritans, they were half Jews, right? And they worshipped, they worshipped Jehovah, but they worshipped Jehovah in their own way with their own syncretistic pagan practices mixed in. And instead of worshipping in Jerusalem, they worshipped in Mount Gerizim. They had their own temple, which actually had been destroyed by this time. But they had their own temple that they worshipped God in. And so they, there was an enmity, a battle between these two groups of people. They didn't like each other. And yet Philip, he's scattered abroad. He has anywhere else he could choose to go. But where does he choose to go? He chooses to go down to Samaria and he preaches the gospel in Samaria. Now in verse number six here, it says, and the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. 
For unclean spirits crying with loud voice came up out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed, and there was great joy in the city. And so we see not only did Philip go down to the Samaritans, something difficult for him to do, but he preached and God blessed. He saw the, 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 everybody was listening eagerly, attentively, to see what he is, he, is, he is saying. But what is it that drew these people to Philip? This is going to be key to the rest of our lesson. What is it that stood out to them? It was the miracles that he was performing, right? Initially, that's, that's what caught their attention here. It says, it, says, it says in verse number six, and the people with one accord gave heed unto the things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. And then it describes some of those miracles in verses seven, in verse seven right there. But the implication here is that these people, the Samaritans, they had a strong inclination to the magical arts, okay? Isn't that like tr so true of our society today? We have a strong interest that are magical or mystical. And that's, that's what these people are interested in. That's what's drawing them to listen to Philip, is that they look at, they look at the things that Philip is doing and they assume these are this is magic, Okay? So Luke is clearly setting up a distinction between the magical arts and the working of the Spirit of God. That's a clear distinction that he is trying to establish in this text right here. And so we see in, in these verses, first of all, that magic can be learned and purchased, but God's Spirit cannot because it is a gift of God. But also, in contrast to that, magic is a force while the Spirit is a person. What Philip was, was doing was not the result of learned magic tricks or spells or potions or anything like that. It was a gift of God, the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 7 says, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. <clears throat> Simon loves to do his magic tricks. But here's the thing about magic tricks. You, can't go, you can go and you can look them up on YouTube. But if you want to have the power of the Holy Spirit... YouTube ain't give, giving it to you, okay? That's not where you're going to get it. You can't go to a shop and purchase it, right? Okay? And so I, I can't say whether Simon's magic was real or whether it was just tricks, but the text, because the text does not say. But the point here is this. I can't teach you how to have the Holy Spirit. I can't, it can't be something that you just learn. It's a gift of God. It's a gift of God. And it's a gift ultimately that's given at salvation, but the fullness of the Spirit is something that comes from God as well, and it is just as much of a gift. So magic is also a force, but the spirit is a person. In Acts chapter 10, um, when Peter is being told to go down and preach the gospel to Cornelius, okay? Peter's in a vision, says, while Peter thought on the vision, the spirit said unto him, behold, three men seek thee. Arise therefore and get thee down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Now who's talking? It's the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is not a force, okay? It's not Star Wars, the force be with you. The Holy Spirit is a person. He, he says to Peter, I have sent them, go with them, okay? The Holy Spirit is a person. He is not a force. With a force, you can wield it. You can manipulate it. You can make it do what you want it to do. But with a person, he has his own will. He has his own desires, his own plans. And so we do a disservice to the Holy Spirit when we think of him only as the strength to live holy or to do ministry. How many times when we think about the Holy Spirit, that's what he gets reduced to? 
I need the Holy Spirit. Why? To do ministry. Or I need the Holy Spirit. Why? Because I'm struggling with this sin. And we reduce him in our minds to just a force Christian wields as a weapon against his flesh and against the world. But rather, the Spirit is a person who is active and who is doing things in the church. And so as a Christian, when we are praying that, the, that we, God would do a work in our lives, we should be joining in cooperation with the Spirit to accomplish what the Spirit wants to get done. Not as a weapon. So in these two senses, the spirit is different from magic. And that is, that's part of the contrast that Luke is trying to set up in this text. So the first point here that we've seen is the gospel as it goes out into the regions of Samaria. But I want us to look here at verse number 9. And we're going to look at a man named Simon Magnus. Simon Magnus. Verse number 9 says, But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery, and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one, to whom they all agree, gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And to him they gave regard, uh, because that of, a that of long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. But when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also, and was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. So our next scene introduces the antagonist in the story. Most people call him Simon Magus. The name Magus is derived from the word sorcery and, and bewitched, all those kind of things. It's not in the text. But it's the, it's the word from which we get magi or magician. Simon the magician okay, is being talked about here. And so the name, name originally referred to people from Persia, hence we have the Magi the, the, that came to visit Jesus, okay? But it began to be used for those who were interested in the magical arts. But I think it's important for us to understand the main thrust that Luke is trying to show us about who Simon was in this text. So if we look at verse number 9, first of all, it says that he used sorcery. Verse number 9. But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery. Again, this is the contrast. Magic with the Holy Spirit. And so Simon used the sorcery and he bewitched the people. But also he was a self-promoting person. In verse number 9, again at the end, says giving out that himself was some great one. Not only did he do magic, but he wanted to be recognized as a great one. Or the great one, really, if you read the rest of the story, and he allowed himself to be worshipped in a way as a divine being. In verse number 10, says that the people said of him, this man is the great power of God. Didn't say A, this is the great power of God. So they, they esteemed him above all natural men as being some sort of divine power that was being manifested by God on the earth. And so they were, in, in essence... Worshipping him. They were worshipping him as the manifestation of God's power on earth. Now, early, early traditions about Simon Magus taught that he was an antichrist and the father of all heresies. They also taught that he was the father of Gnosticism. He was the one who started it all. Okay, we don't know that. And honestly, I don't know if they knew that either. Okay, so, but, it, but it's interesting to see how 
how the early church viewed this man. It was not a very view that they had of Simon Matthew. So the other question we need to ask ourselves, and I asked Pastor Carsey's this question, was Simon saved? Okay. That's, that's the question everybody's got in their mind when they read this text. Um, verse number 13 says, Then Simon himself believed also. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip. And on it goes. Okay? Now, there's a lot of debate about whether he was saved or whether he was saved. I don't have an answer. I'm not going to take a stand uh, on which he is. And honestly, it doesn't really matter to the whole point of this message this morning. But I'm going to give you some evidence for, and I'm going to give you some evidence against. And you can pick, okay? Or ask the Spirit to reveal to you, okay, which one is true. But the first, the first evidence that he was a saved man is the fact that in verse 13, a point-blank indicative statement says, then Simon himself believed also. Most people will say, well, we don't know what he believed, because it doesn't say. It says what everybody else believed, but not Simon. But there's that key word right there that says also. That links what, he, what it says about Simon to what it says about the other people. So it says he got saved right there. He believed, okay? Peter's rebuke in verse number 20, which is one of the reasons people oftentimes say he couldn't have been saved. But Peter's rebuke is not really that much different from the one that he himself received when Jesus rebuked him. And say, get thee behind me, Satan. Right? And then he tells him, I've prayed for you um, that, uh, that Satan wouldn't have you. Uh, Matthew 16, 23 says, but he turned and said unto Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Okay? That's a pretty strong rebuke. And that was given to Peter. Um, also, this rebuke in the Greek tense for the verb is given as a warning not as a promise. Okay, when, when he says, thy money perish with thee, he is not promising that Simon will perish. The, this is given as a warning. If, if something isn't done, you will perish. And then verse 22, where he says, repent therefore of this thy wickedness and pray to God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee, that leaves the, op the door open for forgiveness. Simon is not a lost cause in this case. So is he saved? Maybe. Here's the evidence against, okay? As I said in verse 13, some people argue that it doesn't say what he believed. In fact, in verse 13, there's a strong emphasis on the fact that he wondered, beholding the miracles and the signs which were done. It could be that, that Simon was just amazed and believed in the power of the apostles and Philip, and, he, and, he, and so he was amazed in these miracles and signs that he was seeing. And that's the focus of, of his life right there. That's, that's what he is focused on, even at the moment of supposed salvation, is these miracles and these signs. Another thing that I thought was interesting is the text doesn't say that the Holy Spirit came upon him. He sees the apostles laying hands on everybody else, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. But it does not mention that happening to Simon. Then in verse 24... When Simon is told to repent and to ask for forgiveness, Simon doesn't actually do that, does he? He asks Peter to pray for him, okay? And then on top of this, nearly all of church tradition says this man was an antichrist, okay? So that maybe not as strong of a point, but those are some of the reasons why people believe that he wasn't saved to begin with. And honestly, I don't know what to think of Simon, and the, the question is important if you want to interpret every detail of the rest of this passage. 
So that's why I've given you these reasons. If you want to know every little detail of the rest of this passage, you need to answer that question because it does influence your understanding. But the main thrust of what Luke is trying to say through this story can be, can be gleaned without knowing the answer to that question. Okay? So that's a little bit about Simon himself. But now we're going to focus on verses 14 through 25. This is the main thing that we want to get across in this text here. This is the confrontation. So in verses 14 through 17, it sets up the scene. It says, Now when the apostles, which were at Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. So the apostles back in Jerusalem, they've heard about what is happening in Samaria. And they want to follow up on what Philip had done. The next two verses tell us that the work that, Peter, that Philip had done was incomplete. There was something that still needed to be done, right? Because the Holy Ghost had not come upon them as yet. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this idea of laying on of hands, but I do think it's important that we understand what's going on here. Why is it that we have people who are saved here, but they don't have the Holy Ghost? Hey, that's the question that we got to ask. Uh, this story really serves as an exception to the rule. Romans 8 verse 9 says, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. The principle from that, from that verse is this. As a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. Every believer who places his faith in Jesus Christ automatically has the Holy Spirit. And Paul is saying that if you don't have the Holy Spirit, then you are not one of his. You are not a Christian, okay? So what's going on here, right? Why, why is it that they don't have the Holy Ghost yet? And honestly, in the early times of the, of the book of Acts, things were a little bit different because the gospel was still going out to different groups. And the giving of the Holy Spirit, these miracles, these signs, the the even speaking in tongues, they were all signs that God's hand was on the message of the gospel as it went to these new groups. It was a sign of authentication. And so here we have the gospel going to a new people. It was no longer just to the Jews. It was going to the Samaritans. And so in, in that sense, the apostles came and they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit as a sign that the gospel had come to them. Now, if you remember Acts chapter 2, did anybody lay hands on them in Acts chapter 2? No. Nope. How about Acts chapter 10 in Cornelius' case? The Holy Spirit comes upon them while Peter is still preaching. Nobody laid hands on them, and the Holy Ghost came upon them. So the laying of the ha- on of the hands was merely incidental. When, so- when it says here in verse, uh, verse number 18, And when Simon saw that through laying on of, hand- of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money. That isn't saying the laying on of the hands gave the Holy Spirit. What that is saying is Simon observed that when they laid their hands on him, the Spirit was given. Merely an observation on Simon's behalf, okay? So it is not arguing that you have to have their hands on you for you to receive the Holy Spirit after you get saved. That is not what the teaching of this text is, okay? That is contrary to Romans 8 verse 9. That's clear, solid evidence right there. Romans 8 verse 9. And one of the, one of the principles of, of exegesis or understanding a scriptural passage is you interpret the unclear by the clear. Romans 8 verse 9 is clear, point blank. We've got an unclear passage here. We're not going to reinterpret the rest of the Bible based on this unclear passage. 
We're going to interpret this unclear passage based on what is clearly taught in the scriptures. So that's the setting that we see here. They see the apostles, he sees the apostles laying on of hands and the Holy, Holy Ghost being given to the believers. And then in verses 18 and 19, we see Simon's desire. It says here, And when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands and the, the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. Simon ultimately is making a bold request. He is saying, give me this power, this kind of power. But Peter rebukes him and says, thy money perish with thee. Okay? Simon had offered to buy the power. As if the Holy, Sp Holy Spirit is a commodity that you can purchase, that you can manipulate, that you can give enough money to and you'll, you'll just have it. And so Simon wanted to purchase this power from the apostles. He saw all the great things that God was doing in the works in the life of Philip and in the life of the apostles, and he lusted after it. He yearned after it. But then again, we, we have to step back. Like I said, when we talk about the first great awakening, you see these things that happened because of Jonathan Edwards. Is there a preacher in this building that has not wanted that to happen? That has not wanted 30 people to get saved in one service, you know? And then the gospel to go out to the entire region that in. So is it wrong that he desired the power itself? I don't think that's, that's the point here. I think the point is he was trying to buy the power, and it wasn't a power that was his to begin with. Okay? He, thought it, he thought it was something that they were doing, not that God was doing. He thought it was something that could be purchased like a magical deck of cards from a magic shop. And so the problem with Simon is that he thought the spirit was some sort of power to be acquired it tickled his mind, and it was something that he was used to, right? This is what he did before he got saved. And so he's like, yes, hey, I can have my cake and eat it too. I can be a Christian and still do all the things that I was doing before. And the people will want to listen to me, and they will come to me as well. Okay, and I, I see in this text a hint of a desire for authority as well. Because this power is not just the, the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the authority that was given to the apostles. And we'll see that in some of, the, some of the verses that follow. So he could be a Christian and still have all the prestige and authority that he once had by using his magic to impress the people. Then we see Peter's rebuke in verses 20 through 23. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this thy wickedness and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. The first thing that Peter says is, thy money perish with thee. And the implication is that Peter was saying Simon and his money would go to hell. That's the idea of, be, of perishing. It's eternal perishing here. And remember, again, this is not a promise, but it is a warning. And then he says, thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. The spirit and his fullness is not something you can buy. It's not something you can get. Buy my nine-week series and I will teach you how to be filled with the spirit, okay? It is not something you can purchase. You can't market it. In English, we have a word that is derived from this act of Simon. It's called simony, 
okay, after Simon. And according to the Oxford English Dictionary, it is the buying or selling of ecclesiastical privileges, for example, pardons or benefits. I'm changing the word benefits. Benefices? Okay, benefits is the word I'm going to use. But notice, it's named after Simon. The very sin right there, purchasing ecclesiastical privileges and benefits, is named after this man, Simon. Simon desired the power and thought it could be purchased. But how often do we do the same thing? I think we passively do it. We don't, we don't say, okay, I'm a millionaire. I deserve to have God's, God's power, so here I'm going to donate my money and God's going to give me the power. That, that's not usually how we do this, right? But we do try to purchase the power. Um, have we ever prayed in our prayer and... and uh, <clears throat> And so we just try to be good enough so that the Holy Spirit will be on us. We will, I'll do the X, Y, Z, if you will just fill me with your spirit, okay? Isn't that trying to purchase as well? We're bargaining with God. We're manipulating God to give us our spirit. I'm not saying you shouldn't be a righteous, holy man, and then God will give you your spirit. That's not what I'm saying. But isn't that type of a prayer merely a manipulation of the spirit? To say, I will be this type of person if you will just give me the fullness of your spirit. Um, If I say so many prayers, I might be able to make God bless my ministry or my family or etc. Any other thing that you want God's blessing on. And it all boils down to trying to purchase or manipulate the working of the Holy Spirit. And this again goes back to the question I asked at the beginning. Why do we want God to bless our ministry? Why do we want to see an outpouring of God's spirit? Is it merely to make our lives more easy, more comfortable, uh, make our, our reputation greater, or to um, satisfy some internal need that we have? Is that why we want the Holy Spirit to come upon us and to bless our ministry? So as his rebuke is, thy money perish with thee, and he rebukes him for trying to purchase with money the gift of God, trying to manipulate God into giving him this kind of power. Then he says here, thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter. Part means a share and lot means a say in this matter. And I think this in this matter refers to apostleship. They are saying, you don't have have any any role in this thing. This is something that the God has given us as the apostles. The ability to impart the Holy Ghost was not given to Simon. It was not his to begin with. And Simon desired this type of authority, this type of position. But then he says, he says here, thy heart is not right in the sight of God. And this is really the key problem with Simon. Simon wanted power to see great things done, but his heart was not right before God. The problem wasn't in him wanting to, the Holy Spirit to be involved in the work that he was doing. The problem wasn't in wanting the Holy Spirit to do great things. The problem wasn't in desiring the Holy Spirit's presence in his life. That wasn't the problem. The problem was a heart problem. His heart was not right with God because he wanted it for the wrong reasons. Acts 8 verse 23 says, For I perceive, Peter, having this ability to perceive his heart, says, For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Peter, seeing into the heart of Simon by the power of God, God's spirit determined that Simon was bitter and in sin for desiring this. I think Simon saw something he couldn't have. And what happens when you see something you can't have, and you focus on it over and over and over again? You get bitter. You get angry. 
because you feel shut out from it, right? And so Simon has gotten bitter and he desires, he lusts after what isn't his to have, what is, that, what is the apostles. And that bitterness is a deep-seated anger. He was upset that God would not let him have this and he was envious of the apostles. That was his heart behind his request. But yet also we see in this text that there was hope in verse 22 and 24. It says, repent therefore of this thy wickedness and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. So Simon had a heart problem, but there was hope. If he would repent, what does it mean to repent? To change your mind, okay? Which includes values, desires, all these kinds of things. So maybe you see yourself as trying to manipulate God. You can repent and that's, that forgiveness is offered. And notice here what, what needed to be forgiven. It says, the thought of thine heart. The thought of thine heart. A lot of times we define sin as activity, actions, things that people do. And so we think we're pretty righteous because we didn't rob a bank, we didn't lie, we didn't steal. But we have bitter, angry, envious thoughts within our hearts. And that thought needs to be repented of, okay? Uh, Repent, uh, the definition of repent is so key here because it's a change of mind. Well, what what are these thoughts or sins? You need to change those thoughts. You need to repent of them, okay? So the sermon is not a condemnation of seeking God's hand in our lives. It is intended to steer you away from seeking God to work on your behalf. It is a question to ask, what are your motives for what you desire God to do? Is it all about you, or is it all about the glory of God? Simon here in these verses, he wanted to gain prestige because he was used to everybody worshiping him and applauding him. He wanted to gain money, okay? I think he was getting wealth from all of this. He was make, by offering to pay for it, he was getting an investment, okay? But then he also wanted authority. He wanted what the apostles had that wasn't his to begin with. Magic is a tool to be used, but the spirit of God is a person, a gift from God that each of us has within us as believers. So while the deacons, we're going to be having an all-night prayer meeting this Friday night. Why are we doing that? Is it to see God bless our ministry? Yes, it's to see God bless our ministry. That's what we want. That's what we desire. But the question we need to ask ourselves that's embedded in that is why? Why do we want God to bless our ministry? If we put the emphasis on the word our, wrong motives. Wrong motives. We have to go into this prayer meeting with the right motives for why we want God to see a work done within this church. That question may sound perfectly fine, but buried within it is an assumption that God is, an end, is a means to our ends. He is a tool to be used to accomplish what I want in this world. And that is a wrong motivation. Are we seeking God's hand and to be on our ministry so we can be successful? Or so we can have more people? Or so we can um, feel value because we are seeing God's, God doing something in our church? And that's a slippery slope that a lot of us face when we're asking God to do something. The question is this, are we seeking God's glory? Are we seeking his ends? Are we a means to his end? Or is he a means to our ends? And in in Simon's life, God was a tool to be used, to be manipulated, to make him glorious, to make him have money and prestige and authority. Step back and ask ourselves, is that us? 
Is our motivation fame, greatness? Or is it the fame or greatness, the majesty of God, the glory of God being experienced by mankind as God makes his presence known through us? So is our ministry about making his glory known? Is the spirit of God just gasoline to fill up our car and get us down the road to our next destination? Or is the spirit of God the one that we worship and that we want to join on his side, be involved in his ministry and what he is doing and be used by him to accomplish his ends? Or is he just a car, a tool to be manipulated? Three practical areas in which we tend to do this. I think a lot of times we do our devotions thinking that starting out the day right will make our day go all right. Okay, have you ever heard that? Have you ever thought that? What if it's God's will that you have a bad day? Honestly, does God ever have his will be that you have a bad day? Bad things happen to people. Hard things happen to people. That's part of God's plan, God's will. Sometimes we try to do our devotions for the motivation that if I do this right, I start off my day right doing God's word, he will bless me the rest of the day and I will have a good day. And buried within that assumption is the assumption that God is a means to our ends. That I can manipulate God by doing what, what I ought to do and he has to bless me now. He has to make my day good. And that's, that's not how things work. What if it was for the glory of God that you had a bad day, that you had some difficulty? I think about the things that we suffer. Loss of a loved one. Um, for me, closest thing to it, uh, I was engaged before I met Katie. And that engagement was broken off, and that was hard for me. Okay, well, why did God allow that to happen? That's a lesson for me, grew me. But also, I can minister to other people on their behalf. God is glorified through what he allowed in my life. I have an opportunity to glorify him through the hard things that happened. So maybe God's will isn't to give you a good day. Should you read your Bible and pray in the morning and seek him anyways, right? Is God a means to an end? What about our prayer meetings? Because we want to see God's, God's power to grow our church, to make us more vibrant, right? But why do we want to see the church grow? Is it all about us? Are we not at that point just using God to make things happen? What if it were God's will for the church to stay small? It's a possibility, right? Could it be? It is a possibility, especially in our pagan era that we live in today when people are forsaking the truth. Would we glorify and praise God in spite of that? Even if everything just stayed the same the way it is now, would we praise God? Why do we go and we tell people about Jesus Christ? Okay, this one was important for me as a missionary. Is it because we feel that no one should ever have to suffer the indignities of hell after they've lived such a horrible life here on earth? Is that why we preach the gospel? To save people from hell, to improve on the justice of God? Because God just can't be just if he would send everybody to hell. We've got to give them the gospel to improve on his justice, to make him to be a good God. But I think there is a subtle, there's a subtle mistake that we are making. God is good if every single person went to hell, period. God is still good if everybody went to hell. He is still just if everybody went to hell. Men are not good men being punished by a bad God. They are bad men being punished by a good God who wants to redeem them, who sends out his mercy and his grace, and he wants to draw them to himself. He is a good God who punishes sin. He is not an evil God. 
And so the question is this, everyone, or the statement is this, that God is just to send everybody to hell. He did not have to save a single person, but God wants to. God loves the world. God desires the salvation of the lost. So we go and we preach to the lost because Jesus is worthy of the people for whom he died. Not to improve on his judgment, not to say, oh, God can't be good if, if he doesn't save these people, or we've got to make his justice improved in some way but it is rather because he deserves the salvation of the lost. And so in that sense, we, our, our presentation of the gospel should not be a means to satisfy our ends, to make man happy and make man more satisfied and, and help mankind, but to further God's glory and to praise him and to lift him up to be part of his plan because he is worthy of the salvation of the lost for which he died. What these people need to see is that they are sinners condemned by a good God who wants to save them. Not that they are good people in danger of a bad God. There is none righteous, no, not one. They are all gone out of the way. By such a presentation, we've turned it all around. We've made salvation about me, about my happiness, my goodness. And God becomes just a, me a means to an end to satisfy my desires. I'm not advocating that we abandon any of these things. All of these things are needed, but we need to reevaluate the why. Why are we doing these things? God is not to be manipulated. He is not a tool. Rather, we join on his side and we work with him and let him do great things that he wants to do that are in his will because it's all for him. And anything we are able to see done, it was him doing it to begin with. And that was the lesson Simon needed to learn, whether he was saved or not that God's power can't be purchased. He can't be manipulated. God's power is a gift from God. And we need to side out with him and not use him as a tool. Let's go ahead and stand. We'll have a time of invitation this morning. <clears throat>